Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Here, what do the teachings of the Buddha mean to followers of other masters? What do you mean? Of course, they mean something different to every individual who encounters them, but I wonder what other traditions think when the Buddha's missionaries come around. I imagine that many accept the teachings alongside the teachings of their current masters. There are many out there who teach the Buddha's Dharma in part, or they otherwise teach something that is agreeable to the Buddha's Dharma. I imagine that there are also people who accept the Dharma in part, but with their own master's teachings as the primary truth. Similarly, I imagine there are those who reject it outright. It would seem that the group who accepts the Dharma in part, but then make modifications to it according to their own master's teachings are the largest group. When a follower of the Buddha from the south meets one from the east, they must appear to be very different. When they both meet a follower from the west, the difference is even more so. Indeed, the Buddha's Dharma falls on us all equally as though it were rain. But as some of us are trees, some of us are shrubs, some flowers, and some grasses, we each drink of it according to our own capacities. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week, we will be discussing Buddhism's arrival into China. What is the story of Buddhism's arrival into China? How did this affect Confucianism and Taoism? How does this influence Chinese Buddhism going forward? We hope you enjoy. So, what is the story of Buddhism's arrival into China? Before we dive into the narratives of Buddhism's arrival into China, we should address a methodological issue that comes up when addressing this question. The sources that we have indicate a narrative that includes members of the elite, namely wealthy people trading along the Silk Routes, and government officials. However, that narrative is limited in scope. It only provides the story of Buddhism from the perspective of the very top of society. I'll give that narrative because it's very useful for the work of historians, but it should be known that there is at least one other narrative which is all but unknowable and which includes the rest of everybody else. I will give this rather unknowable narrative first because it's more likely, and then I'll give the narrative depicted by the written sources, which depicts the wealthy elite, second. Starting with what I'm calling this mostly unknowable narrative, you might be wondering why I say it's mostly unknowable. The reason is that there is very little, if any, written evidence of it, and there is little archaeological evidence as well. Moreover, it's very difficult, if not totally arbitrary, to demarcate historical borders between countries, because the concept of a nation-state with firmly established and defined borders is only about 200 years old. That meant that borders were more like gradients rather than firm lines in the dirt, making it hard to say when X thing crossed into Y country. However, this narrative is the most likely to be Buddhism's first actual entry into what we now call China, so let's get into it. Buddhism does not move on its own. It isn't a thing with mobility and agency. Buddhism does not spread. People spread Buddhism. People take it with them wherever they go. That means that geography, trade, and cultural exchange are the biggest determining factors in how people spread it. So knowing that, scholars suspect that Buddhism was brought into what we now call China during the Han Dynasty, which lasted from 206 BCE to 220 Common Era. 
it was likely brought over by traders on the Silk Routes, where much cultural mixing and exchanging took place historically. People living and trading along those routes were exposed to ideas and objects from all over. These artifacts and items and ideas came from East and Central Asia, the Middle East, and even Europe. So Buddhism from Western and Northern India was likely introduced to this trade and exchange network by traders going to these silk routes to trade in what is now Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and Tajikistan. These countries are to the north and northwest of India. You might be thinking Buddhism was founded in what is now Nepal, which is much closer to China than any of those other places. So why did Buddhism go west instead of going north? The answer is twofold. First, the Himalayas are pretty much impassable overland on foot, and they stretch from present-day Myanmar in the east all the way to Pakistan in the west. They are a huge, huge geographical physical barrier, so people traveled the path of lesser resistance. The second part of the answer is that China's present-day borders are shared with India and Nepal, but like we said, historically, borders were not so well defined. If one stepped over to the northern side of the Himalayas in 200 BCE, they were not necessarily setting foot into what we could call China. During the Han Dynasty, the centers of what we call Chinese culture and politics and influence were much further east and north than Nepal and Tibet, and so on. So Buddhism had a much longer way to travel, and these silk routes were paths of far less resistance than crossing the Himalayas. We have textual and archaeological evidence of Buddhism existing in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan during this time period, which leads us to conclude that it must have reached Han China, which lies at the eastern end of these silk routes, after it came to those places. However, it reached this region among people on caravan trains and accompanying traders and so on, so it likely entered by means of oral traditions of recitation and by means of iconography since most of these people would have been mostly illiterate. Their being illiterate and Buddhism being mostly oral and iconographic is why we don't know much, if anything, about this narrative of Buddhism's entry to China. There is so little evidence that is still accessible to us after 2,000 years. However, we know that the type of Buddhism that was being spread was mostly Mahayana. One reason for that is that the Buddha's death directly contributed to the development of Mahayana, which, in its earliest iterations, has been called a cult of the book. This title refers to the emerging practice of reciting and worshipping the written word of the Buddha as though it were the Buddha himself, since that is what we have left of him in this world. The other narrative, which is far more fleshed out and well-established, is connected to this first one. At the same time as this sort of exchange is going on among common illiterate people who are trading and engaging in cultural exchange along this silk route, a more official and elite exchange is also taking place. Translators sponsored by wealthy people who are trading along these silk routes are translating Buddhist texts from their original language into the language of their sponsors. These texts are then being sent with missionaries to the Central Asian states that I mentioned earlier, such as Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and Tajikistan, and they are encountering people in the western reaches of the Han Dynasty of China. Some of these translators are called An Shigao, An Xuan, and Lokakshima. Then they slowly travel more and more eastward, and eventually the attention of the Emperor of Han is caught by this new religion entering his realm from the west. Now it is about the first or second century of the Common Era, and more and more people in the elite and wealthy classes 
are converting to Buddhism and sponsoring translations and creation of icons. Thus, you can see that around this time period, Buddhism in China starts to snowball. The earliest documented and verifiable translation of Buddhist scriptures from their parent language into Han Chinese occurs around 148 Common Era, with the arrival of a character from Parthia, or present-day northeastern Iran, called An Shigao. He was originally a prince in this region, but he renounced and became a monk. He worked to establish Buddhist temples in Luoyang, or present-day Hunan province, at the confluence of the Yellow and Luo rivers. An Shigao translated Buddhist texts on basic doctrines, meditation, and eventually Abhidharma as well. Anshuan, who was a Parthian layman who worked alongside Anshigao, also translated an early Mahayana Buddhist text on the Bodhisattva path. Thus again we can see that the Buddhism that was entering China was primarily Mahayana Buddhism. The way that Buddhism spread in China thus drove and was driven by doctrinal development in Mahayana Buddhism. Earlier Buddhism did not worship the text itself. They did not create as much iconography, and they didn't proselytize by means of missionaries. But Mahayana Buddhists did all of that and more. As Mahayana Buddhism spread, it localized and syncretized and picked up many unique aspects from wherever it was being practiced. This leads us into our next question. How did this affect Confucianism and Taoism? At the time of Buddhism's arrival into the imperial court of China, there were already two different and often competing ways of thinking pervading among the elite, Confucianism and Taoism. So we should start by loosely defining these ways of thinking. We've talked about them briefly in the past, but they deserve a little bit more time here. Confucianism was the social philosophy and political philosophy put forth by Confucius, or Master Kong, a Chinese philosopher and politician during the Warring States period of Chinese history. He argued that the way to achieve perfect societal harmony, which includes harmony between humans and nature and the gods and the ancestors of the land, was for people to uphold the five cardinal relationships, practice ritual propriety, practice filial piety, practice benevolence, and study the Chinese classics. These five cardinal relationships are as follows. Parent and child, where the parent loves the child and the child is obedient and pious to the parent. Older and younger sibling, where the older sibling is to be gentle and the younger is to be respectful. Husband and wife, where the husband is to be good and fair and the wife is to be understanding. Older friends and younger friends, where the older friend is to be considerate and the younger is to be reverential to the older one. And finally, ruler and subject, where the ruler is to be benevolent and the subject is to be loyal. These five relationships were the foundation of all society, according to Confucius. In addition to upholding these specific roles, everybody was required to educate themselves on the classics, which held in them mythologized descriptions of how society used to be under the rule of these semi-divine sage kings, which lived and ruled during the Zhou dynasty about a thousand years before Confucius's time. Given that Confucius's time was plagued by war and suffering and discord, he looked upon the peace depicted in these texts as an ideal that we all ought to strive to bring back and revitalize. Through study of these texts, human beings would become more dutiful and proper in the carrying out of ancestor worship rituals, would be more benevolent to each other, and would be more pious and respectful to their parents and ancestors. This, he saw, was the remedy to the troubles that his contemporary society was facing. The way in which people lived in the classics was called the Tao, or the Way. This is a concept that is shared with Taoism as well. 
Taoism, as opposed to Confucianism, was much more mystical and perhaps what we might call today religious in nature. Taoism regarded the Tao not as the way in which the ancient sage kings lived and ruled, but actually as the unknowable and unnameable pattern and means by which nature and reality unfolds itself in its natural and spontaneous state. Thus, the way to live according to the Tao was not to seek it through education, through textual study, or through our own machinations, but rather through returning somehow to our original state, wherein we are not distanced from our natural state through learned behaviors, habits, and beliefs. Indeed, we are encouraged to become like babies who act spontaneously, naturally, and energetically, because they haven't been taught civilization. In modern terms, this is similar to what we call rewilding. That movement has its own serious problems, but the premise is very similar to Taoism. It seeks to reconnect people to their nature as participants in the unfolding of the natural world around us, rather than spectators, controllers, or disruptors. These movements are just as much political movements as they are religious or philosophical movements. In fact, I sort of think of them as ancient China's liberals and conservatives, though there are some problems with that comparison. However, we can think of the Confucians as being similar to the conservatives in the US. They look toward an idealized or mythologized past, and they seek to revitalize and reignite that way of living, and in doing so, sort of make China great again by looking to this time and this society from when the sage kings ruled. They believe in strict social rules to enforce order and prosperity in society. Meanwhile, the Taoists are very hands-off with social rules, willing to let people do their own thing, and are very concerned with the environment and letting the world run its course. So Buddhism shows up, and it is met with some opposition from both of these factions. A third prevailing school of thought threatens the power and influence of the other two politically, so keep in mind there is a political dimension to this, but there are also philosophical and religious disagreements as well. As we've mentioned before, there's disagreement between the Confucians and the Buddhists when it comes to practices of renunciation, self-immolation, and copying sutras using blood and other bodily fluids. The reason for this disagreement, and the reason that all of this is taboo to Confucians, is that the body is regarded as a gift from the ancestors and from one's living parents, and to damage it, to remove it from the social scheme of the five relationships, or to kill oneself is seen as a very grave insult to the parents and ancestors. You are throwing their gift away. However, there are some points where the two ways of thinking agree. For example, they both support this idea of benevolence in a very big way. Confucian thinking perhaps even fueled the popularization of the Bodhisattva path of compassion for all sentient beings because benevolence is so critically important to Confucianism as well as to Buddhism. As for Taoism, it's a bit more amenable to Buddhism's arrival. For one thing, Buddhism does not exclude local Taoist deities from enshrinement and ritual, leading to much of the localization and syncretization we've talked about at length before. On the other hand, it was much easier for the Taoists to adopt the Buddha as a Taoist sage than for the Confucians to adopt the Buddha as a fully realized scholar-gentleman who had read the Chinese texts. Additionally, to bring it back to political concerns, the Taoists were the minority political faction at the time of Buddhism's arrival, and Buddhism's increasing popularity was posed to increase their influence with the emperor if they decided to embrace it, which they did. How does this influence Chinese Buddhism going forward? To answer this question, we should start by discussing religious affiliation in the pre-modern era. We have talked about how the word religion is very recent and a very new word. In the towns and the villages in China, 
there were not people walking around saying, what religion are you? Oh, I'm Buddhist. Are you a Taoist? And so on. The borders between traditions were extremely hazy and porous. In the modern era, we have a menu of neatly delineated traditions to choose from. I can wake up one day and say, today I will go to the Buddhist temple, but tomorrow I'll go to the Christian church. At this time, the average everyday person did not have such a menu. They had a local temple, which enshrined the deceased of the community and included elements from Buddhism, Confucianism, and Taoism. They were so interlinked in the religious environment in China that they came to be collectively referred to as the Sanjiao, or the Three Teachings. This led to Chinese Buddhism becoming an entirely unique type of Buddhism compared to what happened in India, very much syncretized with Confucianism, Taoism, and local religious traditions. These syncretizations were very localized. What we call China today is very linguistically, geographically, ethnically, and culturally diverse, and so the syncretization and localization happened very differently in each region. There are some places that are very remote and removed from the rest of society where developments occur in the near absence of outside influence. On the other hand, there are also very urban and connected places where developments occur with influence and connections to many very distant and diverse places. As such, the religious landscape of pre-modern China is extremely difficult to study. Nevertheless, there are some themes and trends we can identify, even if they are predominantly determined by trends among elite, urban, and powerful people in history. We can look to pre-modern Chinese Buddhism to identify the development or even the origins of several traditions of Buddhism which are very popular to this day. For example, though Zen, Pure Land, Tendai, and Kegon Buddhism have origins in India, we can see increased popularity and development of these traditions in China in the form of Chan Buddhism, Jingtu, Tiantai, and Huayan. We can also see some historically important traditions which developed in China but have gone extinct or fallen out of popularity, including Yogacara, Dilun, Venaya, and Junyin. We have discussed Yogacara on the show before, when we had Turner as our guest, and other times as well. Dilun Buddhism was a competing faction of Yogacara Buddhism that eventually got absorbed into Huayan Buddhism. Vinaya Buddhism lived on into Korea and Japan, and it primarily revolved around study and practice of the Vinaya Pitaka, or the texts related to monastic rules, but it has since died out. Junyan Buddhism is Chinese esoteric Buddhism, which is relatively short-lived in China's history, but was popular at the right time to heavily influence Kukai and Saicho, the founders of Japanese Shingon and Tendai, respectively. In all these schools, if we look to the texts and to the rituals, we can find the influence of Confucianism and Taoism in many ways, including ancestor worship, cults of royalty, very unique regional pantheons with local characters, myths, and lore, and many more attached to them. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion of Buddhism's entry into China. Join us next week where we will be discussing secular Buddhism. What does this word secular mean? What is secular Buddhism? What are some of its strengths and weaknesses? We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and voice of hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of hermit. And this is Med Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on 
brightbuddhism.buddhism at gmail.com or find us on Mastodon at brightbuddhism at mstdn.party. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.